Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Olivier Award-winning writer and director, playwright, theater company co-founder, author, activist. That's what you'll find on Jessica Swell's resume. Her first play, Blue Stockings, was written in 2013, and that was followed by Nell Gwynn in 2015. Both premiered at Shakespeare's Globe, but Nell Gwynn was transferred to London's West End, and it won the Olivier for Best New Comedy. Her theater writing credits are extensive and impressive. Speaking of theater, in 2005, Jessica founded the Red-Handed Theater Company, and as its artistic director, won the Peter Brook Empty Space Award and has directed a whole host of plays. Jessica's making her big screen directorial debut with the just released film Summerland, which by the way, she also wrote. Set in England during World War II, it tells the story of a reclusive writer who winds up adopting a young evacuee from London. I saw the film and I loved it. Jessica also happens to be an associate artist with the international NGO Youth Bridge Global, which uses theater as a development tool in countries torn apart by war. She's directed several community productions in the Balkans, as well as the Marshall Islands and the Pacific. She's the author of a best-selling series of drama game books, and last but not least, is active in Time's Up UK and the 5050 campaign, which aims for greater equality in theater and film. So let's meet and get to know this hell of a creative woman. Jessica, welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely from the UK. It is an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Did you grow up saying, I'm going to work in theater, I'm going to work in film, I'm going to write a play? I've been a sort of creative nomad from a very early age, which is partly because of coming from a family where my in-laws and my grandparents were always people who promoted doing what you loved with your life rather than sort of chasing a financial dream. And and I've always been very grateful for that, actually. So I, I come from a family with quite a lot of artists and <laughs> flaky musicians and, and <laughs> slightly sort of hippie types who live in barns in France and um, make music and uh, live on a, a shoestring. But I, I think when you're surrounded by that growing up and when your parents really encourage you to pursue whatever it is that makes you happy, then that gives you space to really try and work out what that is. And despite going to a very academic school where you know nearly everybody uh, was encouraged to go to Oxford and Cambridge. It was lovely mm. to go home at the end of the school day and have parents who, you know, wanted me still to do my best. But when I said, actually, I want to be an actor, <laughs> wouldn't say, why? You should be a doctor or a lawyer or right, go to Oxford. Right. So I think I was brought up with that. But But I also, I love telling stories. You know, I spent a lot of time as a very young child in our sort of wilderness of a garden, making up musicals just <laughs> on my own playing all the parts I mean no one watched them but it's now thinking back on it you know I, I I wanted to tell stories from the beginning and I think I was just a little show off to be honest so so you performed one woman shows in other words oh yeah yeah I wrote my brother in whenever I could persuade him but he was normally somewhere sort of digging up whatever bit of garden mum had just beautifully planted. So um, <laughs> he, was, he was my reluctant co-host, I think, for some of those early bits of entertainment. So your first, and I'm using the term in quotes, foray into the arts was in terms of acting. That's what mm -hmm. kind of appealed to you first, in spite of the fact that you said you like to tell stories, but you 
came up with stories that you were going to, quote, act in? Yeah, I mean, I think we were really encouraged to sort of make our own fun when we were growing up because my mum came from, um, she was an only child and her mum didn't have a huge amount of, of money and um, yet she was an artist and, and she used to write stories and so she always encouraged my mum to, and they didn't have a television, to make her own entertainment and I think mum sort of instilled that in me and so even though we had access to TV and that sort of thing, I think from from a pretty early age, we were encouraged very much to to be creative and to get the pens out and make a mess. And and so that sort of enjoying originating something has always been mm-hmm. important to me. And actually, I thought I wanted to be an actor from when I was really quite young. I either wanted to be an actor or a horse rider. I couldn't quite work out. Or a dancer. One of them bends your legs in, the other one bends your legs out. <laughs> At least being an actor, I might walk straight. Um, but. Uh, so dance was the other part of the creative arts that really appealed to me. And actually, my first proper job, I worked as a dancer for a good deal of my time at secondary school and on into university in the days when there was quite a lot of work sort of doing corporate dance, you know, when when these various companies had the money in the in the 90s and the early 2000s to spend loads of money on their big Christmas parties and so they'd have a sort of 1920s theme Mm. these big London companies and hire a huge marquee and 10 Charleston dancers to do a piece of entertainment before between the courses Mm -hmm. Um, a little bit naff but you know as a sort of 17 year old who was who was dancing every night I adored that and I think just the sort of the razzmatazz of it, feeling like it was a little bit Hollywood, even though I was still at school every day. Did you grow up in London? No, I grew up outside London in um, a slightly anonymous place <laughs> outside Reading. Uh, and Reading is most famous for the jail where Oscar Wilde spent rather a horrible time. So it wasn't the most auspicious of beginnings <laughs> in that sense. But I I moved to London after university when I when I sort of ran away to join the circus and went to drama school. Um, ran away to join the circus. You're just not going to drop that in on me without an explanation. Yeah, 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 of course. Well, um, I decided um, while I was at school, I because of the academic nature of the school, it was a really wonderful school. It was an all-girls school, which I think also really helped because for me personally, when you watch girls being good at everything, gender isn't important. I never thought I shouldn't be a director because there was girls around me that were good at maths, good at science, good at physics, good at car engineering, you know, good at the arts. I think taking gender out of the equation somehow meant that I never thought about whether my gender should affect what I was doing. And we were just encouraged to be the best that we could and to do whatever we were good at. But drama wasn't really on the syllabus at our school because it was all about academic subjects and it wasn't a particularly well-off school. And so there was no facilities, for example. And I went to see the school headmistress when I was probably about 14 to say, please, can we have a school play? Hmm. And she said, well, yes, of course. But I mean, you you will have to make that happen. So you'll have to direct it and find the money and get everyone to be in it and sort it out from scratch, off you go. Oh my <laughs> God. Yeah. And, um, but it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because, you know, five years later I left having directed five years worth of school plays, written a couple of 
whole school musicals and slightly embarrassingly shoehorned myself in in some pretty major roles because there was no one else really to do that. So I, I had got quite a bit of experience directing, but at the same time, I still felt in my heart that I thought I wanted to be an actor. And that only changed at the end of my university drama course, where I became the assistant director on a show at the theatre in Exeter, the town where I was studying. And I went for that job because I wanted the experience of being in rehearsal. I wanted to know what it was like to be a professional actor. But I actually realised very quickly that there was a whole lot of really, really interesting stuff that happened before the actors even got involved. And so the director was working months in advance, choosing the play, finding the creative team, you know, working with the designer to make a beautiful model box, which encapsulated the set and looking through pictures, deciding when the play should be set and listening to loads of different music to trying to get the soundscape and choose a composer. And, and then the actors came on board and then we started rehearsals. And of course, in the theatre, the actors just come in for the bits that they're in. And I thought, but I want to be here for all of it. I want to be here months before the actors start. I don't want to miss out on any of that storytelling. And I, I want to be part of everything that's going on. And that was why by the end of that process, I decided that directing was the job for me. I want to focus on the verb want versus mm-hmm. the verb can. Right. Women have wanted to do something, but haven't been afforded the opportunity to do something where they can do it. Right. Or encouraged to do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I had quite a shock going to university when I signed up for the directing course and found that I was the only girl who'd chosen to do that. Because I'd been surrounded by women as a teenager and then went to university and realised that a lot of my peers who were female were choosing very specific elements of the theatre to train in. And that directing wasn't something that there was many other people who seemed to go for. And who knows why that is. But I think if I'd been 13 or 14, I'm not sure I would have had the audacity, frankly, to decide to direct a school play if there'd been some bullshit guys that either were going to do it instead or if I'd been slightly more aware of myself. You know, I think being surrounded by girls as a teenager, in a sense, I mean, in some ways, there's more judgment, but in other ways, Mm, there's less. mm. And I think I was so concerned about what boys thought about me at that age that I'm not sure I would have wanted to be seen as the person who is the sort of the organiser or the boss, if I'm being Mm -hmm. honest. Because I think, you know, a lot of us are brought up to associate sort of front-footedness and bossiness. Um, It's not a word I like, but sort of Mm. that sort of absolute self-confidence and self-assurance which you do need in part in order to get up in front of people and say we're going to do a play and you've got to trust me to take you on that journey that's not a trait that's always associated with positive traits in women well the other part of that is especially after school we're all professionals here (laughs) folks and in spite of that I have interviewed a bunch of female filmmakers who did have that kind of, wait a minute, who's calling it, no pun intended, the shots on this set? Yeah. That there was concern about the fact, forget that I have breasts for God's sake. Mm-hmm. I'm literally and figuratively calling the shots. 
Yeah, yeah. And well, get over it. In my older life, it was, that's why I'm really glad that I went to school where it didn't even cross my mind. Because I think, thankfully, I got to 18 or 19 with the sort of skills and the confidence to not even question the fact that I could go out and sort of do what I want if I worked hard enough at it. And it was only when I went to university and then out into the real world and realised, A, I was totally outnumbered, and B, I got treated very, very differently sometimes as a woman, really differently, and often was undermined and patronised and often seen differently. And and also that I realised that sometimes I behaved in a way which didn't really help me because I was falling back on the notions of what I thought was likeable or expected. Mm-hmm. And that really does hold you back. I remember there was a job that I didn't go for because... I assumed that I wasn't well qualified enough. And then I found out who had got it in my place and thought, wow, I mean, this is a guy that's years behind me. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I know, I've known him for ages. He used to be my assistant, but I didn't <laughs> have the confidence to, I, I just assumed that unless I had all the requisite skills right there and I could absolutely walk in and I was overqualified, that it would be tricky for me to apply. And yet this was the kid who, had absolutely sort of walked in and thought, well, I, I haven't done all the stuff I need to to get this job, but screw it, I'm going to apply anyway. And I'm great and I could do it. And I think that sort of spark and confidence is something which women need to believe in and promote in themselves more if we are going to want the same opportunities. And certainly have the same opportunities. Mm. Let, as I mentioned in the, in the introduction, Blue Stockings was your first play. Mm-hmm. Tell tell us about that experience, and was it something inside of you that just had to get out? What was that process like for you, which obviously would impact the other theatrical productions you're involved with, as well as your filmmaking career? Yeah, so playwriting really, really took me by surprise. I was very, very happy being theatre director. I had no intentions of becoming a writer instead. I always assumed that writers were people who sort of sat on their own being very studious and antisocial and they were sort of in their own heads whereas I love to be sociable and one of my favourite things about directing is the chance to collaborate with other people. That's where I get my energy. I'm really happy being part of a team and I love to sort of try and foster that creativity in other people by working with people who are great, you know, and you work together to make a piece of work. And I think the other part of that, just to sort of hark back to the notion of your voice as a woman, is that it hadn't really struck me growing up that I might become a writer because I hadn't really read any plays by women. And my whole time at school, in my English A-level, for example, we didn't study a single female writer. All of the drama exams I did growing up as an actor or my acting exams, I never ever played a part in a play written by a woman because you had to choose off a series of plays and playwrights on a list and there just weren't any women featured on those lists. And so the idea that I might personally have something to say, which a group of people going into a room to sit and listen to something that I had created for two hours from scratch, I just thought, you know, you really need to have something good to say if you're going to ask people to pay good money to come and sit and listen. And it hadn't really been on my radar that I might have that to share. Uh, I was very happy reading things that other people had written and I thought were brilliant and working on it for myself. And then 
I was actually working on a play about Dickens and doing some research about one of his daughters. And I had been working with the actress who was playing his daughter and working out what she would have been trying to do with her life and what opportunities she would have had as a woman at the end of our Victorian period. And I thought, well, she would go to university, wouldn't she? Because she's clever. And doing the research, I found out that it was only then, at the end of the 1890s, that there was any access for women to higher education. And I, I thought, that's so shocking. And the more I read about it, the more I could not believe the hidden history of the lack of women's education. That's crazy. Country. That's crazy. And more to the point, when women were first allowed to go to university, they were doing identical courses to the men, but they weren't allowed to graduate. And when they protested and they asked to be allowed the right for there to be a vote, then the university sort of had a staged a backlash against them. And there was a huge riot in the streets and lots of ex-students came back to vote against the women, created effigies of these female students, which they burnt in the street. And this is 1897. And women weren't actually allowed to graduate from Cambridge. You know, the end of the play is that these girls in 1897 thought, well, we haven't got the vote this year because they did lose that vote. But next year, surely, next year we'll get it. And the truth is, women were first allowed to graduate from Cambridge in 1948, 50 years later. Oh, my God. So you can imagine, I read that and I thought, well, that needs to be talked about not because it's a hidden bit of history which is being buried that's part of it but also because education in the in this country at the time I felt was not really being appreciated uh-huh. in terms of there was a lot of compromise you know students it wasn't so much about gender but students were having to pay huge fees to go to university so it was really unfair on working class students and at the same time Malala Yousafzai had just been shot for having the audacity to try to go to school to get her education in Afghanistan and that really made me think about girls all over the world that were not allowed access to education and that spurred me forward to write a play and at first I thought well I'll find a writer to write it for me and I'll direct it but then the more I started thinking about it, the more it filled my head, the more I started inventing characters and I couldn't let it go. And soon enough, I was writing scenes. And Blue Stockings was my first play and they asked for it at the Globe and that was embraced by a lot of people, which was wonderful and um, has been ever since. It was also, in a sense of public service, I bet, of exposing what I'm sure a whole lot of people had no idea about. In terms of history. I mean, I I thought I knew quite a lot about women's history and the history of education and absolutely nothing about that. I think it was quite happily buried by the powers that be who were very embarrassed about it. But it's now studied in schools that that Blue Stockings as a play is on the syllabus for GCSE students in the UK who are studying drama. And so I feel really proud that a play that's about the importance of education is now part of the education system. That's fabulous and and well-deserved. Why did you found a theatre company? Because the only way to get work as a director is to make your own work. Because no one will give you a job as a director if they haven't seen 
your work. <laughs> and so whilst I was working as an assistant director in some companies that were already operating, when you're an assistant, you're helping the lead director and you might get to direct a scene or two, but I knew I needed to make my own work alongside that. So I was a sort of very small fish learning from a big fish. And at the same time, I was making my own work and sort of trying to apply everything that I had learnt as an assistant in my role as a director. And out of joint, the theatre company that I was working for at the time as the assistant and then the associate director was really, really helpful in allowing me the advantage of sort of being able to use their rehearsal room for using my own work and their resources and just the support and encouragement of, and the money, frankly, to, mm. to be paid, even though it was at, at small wages, to to have a little bit of an income in order to be able to survive was vital. So you juggled a lot of balls in the air at the same time. Yeah, I did. But I think that's been in my nature since the get-go. My mum is a workaholic and has always been both teaching and writing a teaching guide and studying three different subjects and doing art and looking after a family at the same time. So I think, yeah, it's it's in my bones. <laughs> well, even though you might not have had a tremendous amount of support, obviously that didn't stop you as you forged your path. And I'm not saying you steamrolled over anybody, but it was just like, the hell with you. I'm going to do what it is that I need to do because it's bigger than I am. I suppose that's one way of looking at it. I've I've always seen it more as kind of trusting my gut and wanting to just follow what was interesting at the time. I've never been someone who's liked to plan ahead a long way. So I never had an ambition of, I want to be an Oscar winning filmmaker or I want to be this sort of director. You know, I was a director because I adored directing. And then I accidentally became a writer. And rather than sort of having a notion of exactly where I wanted to go. I've been writing and directing simultaneously, sort of slowly segueing into film, which I now adore. And I, at the moment, spend most of my time doing film because I find it the most challenging. But I pick projects based on what tests my edges and where <laughs> I feel the most challenge. And that's, for me, what's always dictated what I'm doing. And if I feel too comfortable or if I feel like it's too easy, then I lose interest very quickly. I mm. have an attention span of a very, very small ant. So I like to... <laughs> we have that in <laughs> common. <laughs> we have that in common. So let's let's segue over to to film. So Summerland, also, as I mentioned in the introduction, is your debut as a director for film. And was that the same as Blue Stockings, that this was bigger than you? You had a story that you had to tell? No, not at all. Quite the opposite, actually. So um, I love film. I, I, I've really enjoyed watching film for um, most of my adult life, despite not really having seen a lot as a kid because we didn't really watch TV or didn't go to the cinema. So I was a late starter in that front. But that has been a fun catch up. And I, I moved into film really because when Blue Stockings and Nell Gwynn were so successful, um, I started getting lots of offers from film companies to write scripts for them and also to adapt those two properties into either films or TV. And one of the things that happened at that time was that BAFTA were setting up a bursary scheme and were out to 
the BBC and Channel 4 and the BFI to suggest writers that might be working in not in film but in theatre for example or novelists who who people in those um, buildings thought ought to be tempted over into movies because the idea was that lots of lots of movies are sort of recycled notions or lots of writers who are brought up in movies I think are very aware of what property sells and they might be sort of adapting from classics exclusively or mm-hmm. uh, working on franchises and actually what the theatre does is really encourages people to make original work partly because there's so little money in theatre that I think you sort of you cut your teeth in a slightly different way and there's as many original plays as, as there, there isn't room for franchises in theatre in the same way and so theatre has often been a place that the movies have looked to four writers who tell original stories. And I was one of five writers that was picked for this award. And as part of that award, or as the main part of it was that you were challenged to write a screenplay over the course of the nine months. And they gave you some money to take time off your other commitments in order to do that. And that was absolutely invaluable. And the only stipulation they gave was that it was something that you didn't already have in your desk drawer and you had you had to start from scratch and it couldn't be based on anything which existed in any way or on anything historical so I couldn't you know do another play about a historical character it had to be a 100% original idea but it could still be um, a period piece in spite of the fact that it wasn't about a specific event yeah yeah as long as it wasn't um based on anything factual it could right. absolutely be set wherever you wanted and and the five of us wrote such different pieces one of us wrote a piece about space exploration someone wrote a sort of a very contemporary London movie someone wrote a film sort of mega blockbuster sci-fi and I wrote Summerland and I started with a blank piece of paper and on day one thought to myself well this is a chance to write specifically for the cinema what does that mean I could do anything? So where do I start? And so I asked myself, well, why would you go to the cinema? And I thought, well, I don't want to go to the cinema to see everyday life as it's lived. I don't want to go to the cinema to see something bleak and real life and like watching the news. There's some people who write those films and they're absolutely brilliant, but that's not me and it's not my voice. I love to go to the cinema to see something which transports me where the actual cinematography of it allows us to escape from the boundaries of a sort of real existence and Mm -hmm. to explore Mm -hmm. possibilities which you could only do in the movies. So I love magic realism and I love films about imagination and I love films which take you out into landscapes which transport you to a different place. And I also love films about underdogs and about triumph over adversity and about unusual characters and I love writing for great women And I love writing in a period that's not my own because I like to really wear somebody else's shoes. I'm not very interested in writing about my own undisguised daily contemporary experience. I'm really happy to write something set now, but I wouldn't choose to write it something that was too close to myself. And so actually by setting this in World War II, that gave me a sort of imaginative leap, which meant I could wallow around in a different place in a different time which I find much more fun. What year was this for you? About five years ago. 
Okay, so 2015. We'll talk about the premise of the movie, but one of the things that struck me watching it was the intimacy of Summerland. It's Mm -hmm. almost as if it was just me and the movie. Good. Great. Well, it'll be really interesting to see whether people have that same feeling in a cinema. I hope they do, because I shot it with the intention that people would see it on a big screen because of the landscapes and the sort of scale of the emotions in it. But if you can be similarly transported by watching it on a small screen on the laptop, then that makes me really happy. So talk about the genesis of Summerland in terms of, and did that flow out of Jessica Swale? Yeah, yeah, entirely. I mean, it's not based on anything at all that already exists. It wasn't based on reading a story or a book. It was based on me thinking about magic and thinking about a way in which if I wanted to write about imagination, what might that mean? And I I wanted to write something with its heart in the right place. Then I had been thinking a lot about judgment and open-mindedness and why it was so important that we didn't you know, we start to see everybody as equal because at the time I was writing, Brexit was just beginning and I was getting very frustrated with the notion of, sort of embarrassed about being English, quite frankly, and and what that meant. And so part of the genesis was me thinking about what it meant to be English. and, And I didn't like the fact that I suddenly associated Englishness with sort of potential sort of racism and nationalism and this notion of we want to be separate from our neighbours. But it was more than that, actually. It was something more positive than that, which was thinking, but I do love being English, but what what is that? What do I love? Actually, it's about the sort of ancientness of England and the law of the land and the pagans and the folklore and Stonehenge and the beautiful surroundings and the cliffs. And and I started thinking about folklore and, oh, what if there's a woman who loves folklore? What if there's a woman who did love folklore and who, through the circumstances of her life, starts to, you know, believed in or was enjoying the idea of that magic and then becomes a cynic because something happens to harden her. So that's where that stemmed from, really. And then the more I read about folklore and about uh, sort of pagan myths and about women in folklore, the rest of it flowed. And I tend to try and trust my gut as a writer. I don't like to plan things too particularly because I always think if I could write a treatment for a movie that's four or five pages long and I can plan the whole thing well in that tiny amount of words, how is that ever going to surprise anybody over the course of an hour and a half? I find that I get to know characters by writing in their voices. So even though I had quite a lot of the parameters of what Summerland was going to be about and a notion of the story before I started... There was lots that I didn't know until I started writing it because I didn't know who Alice was. I didn't really know who Frank was until I started getting them to talk to each other. And then you get a relationship. And there's some pretty big twists in Summerland. And some of those were a surprise to me. As I Can you share not- some of that without spoiling anything? Tricky. Very tricky. Okay. Um, so tease us. There's a couple of elements of the film which change 
the sort of landscape as we know it. We go in thinking one thing and find out there's a lot more going on than we thought. That's but for sure. That is for damn as sure. random as they appear to have been, but also other elements which are less in terms of spoilers, like the fact that Alice's relationship in the past is with another woman. The fact that she's gay, um, to me, isn't a really important part of the story. It's more about the fact that two people love each other and want different things. It's become more important to me politically over the course of making the movie and thinking about what it represents in the world now in terms of telling those stories and why it's important to celebrate all sorts of diversity. And also writing, as I said, in someone else's shoes. I really enjoyed writing a gay woman, you know, as a straight woman, and writing a story that wasn't my own, but which I identify with wholeheartedly because actually the dilemma in Summerland isn't about sexuality. It's about what you want as a woman and what makes you happy. And something that I felt quite strongly about was that any film I had seen that had depicted a gay relationship between two women, particularly in period films, is always about sexuality and the drama in it is always about how it's too difficult to be together because of sexuality and because of being judged by the outside. And it felt like you could never see a film with two female heroines who were lovers without it being about specifically about how hard it is to be gay not in the mainstream cinema. And I thought this is a real opportunity to make a story where they are gay and that is important. And it means I can have two fantastic women at the heart of my movie, but actually Hmm. the thing that breaks their relationship is nothing to do with their sexuality in one sense. It's to do with the fact that one of them wants a child and the other one doesn't. And of course that's influenced by the fact that they're two women and they're gay, but it's exactly the same debate that I was having as I was writing the movie with my partner where I thought at the time, I wasn't sure, but I I erred on the side of, I think I want children, and he was less sure. And it sort of crossed my mind to think, well, what if I become firmer in that? What if he becomes firmer in the other way? Do you, do you choose to compromise what you wanted to stay with the person that you love? Or do you pursue the notion of, of being a mother at the expense of a really wonderful relationship and try and either go it alone or hope you're just going to meet somebody else out there. Um, And how on earth do you balance that with work as somebody who adored the work that I was doing? And I was already thinking, well, but I want to be a filmmaker and I don't know if I want to be a mother, but if I do, how do I do that? And how do I tell these stories? And how do I be a good partner and a good friend and a good daughter and, etc the trials and tribulations of the multiple hats that women wear and men so yeah it felt very much like all of that it was there in the writing for me and thematically through the film to hear this from you after having watched the film and i don't mean to tease our listeners that adds a whole other level to the film when i watched it there was a lot of shifting. Oh, wow. I didn't think that was going to happen or mm-hmm. how come or whatever. And, and, but not as in why was that, why did that, was that done? No, I was riveted in a sense, right. even though there's, there's a lot of intimacy in this movie, despite yeah. the fact that there are these, like you were saying, the wonderful sh- shots of England, that 
to see that expanse and then to get into that intimacy is quite a contrast, but it so works. Hmm. Obviously, a fact not lost on you because you were creating that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think the wonderful thing about movies and ab- about writing and directing together is that you can tell multiple stories. And that's why I always struggle when people say, well, what's Summerland about? Or what's Blue Stockings about? Because I think, well, Summerland is in one sense about hope and redemption and the importance of trying to believe that there's a possibility of things becoming better. In one way, it's about uh, in one way it's a gay love story in one way it's a buddy movie between a woman and a young boy in one version it's a story about a, a woman who goes on an emotional journey where her heart which was hardened is opened up again because somebody is willing to see her for who she is and not who they think she ought to be in one way it's a story about whether you can do it all as a woman, but it's also a story about folklore and whether heaven exists and about grief and about losing your father, which happened to me as we made the film, which, you know, and that's an example of how, as a writer and director, everything, whether you want it to or not, you know, your life is so intimately tied up in terms of your work. You know, I had written a story about a boy who's, dad dies and as I was writing that first draft I found out that my father had a terminal illness and by the time we shot the movie he was gone which was tremendously of course tremendously sad and is this sort of single most impactful thing that's ever happened to me and it's heartbreaking but it also changed uh not changed but it had an effect on how I felt about the work that I wanted to make and a lot of my thoughts about what I wanted to do with my life and what my priorities were. But the other way that it really fundamentally affected Summerland and my choices since then has been that while he was ill, he decided very definitely that he didn't want to engage with anything that was too depressing or morbid because he knew he had a limited amount of time and he wanted to spend that watching movies that brought him joy Mm. he didn't want to watch something depressing about being eaten by a shark or how terrible (laughs) global warming is you know he really he didn't like anything with peril in but he really wanted to spend his time remembering and celebrating good possibilities so he was watching some you know really old school rom-coms and films that he never would have watched beforehand but he just thought joy and escapism was essential and it really made me think well that's what I want to do I I want to be a filmmaker who who makes work that actually people like my dad could enjoy and it doesn't mean that it shouldn't have grit or that it shouldn't have stakes I'm not talking about making kind of popcorn candy floss movies which are just frothy without any real substance um because I don't believe in that at all and and I know I have a limited amount of time as a filmmaker. I, you, you can't make that many films unless you're Woody Allen, and I don't know how he does it. But it, it really made me think there's absolutely a place for happy endings in cinema. And we so often put tragedy, I think, and bleak stories on a pedestal as if they are the most important. And actually, I think they're much more, that is much harder to be bright and make comedies because they have to have depth as well and and I 
I've made it my sort of mission to make work which always has a redemptive or an optimistic quality, even if it's just a little shred of it. But I feel like there's absolutely a place for stories that where people walk out of the cinema feeling a little bit more hopeful than they did when they arrived. I'm so struck by the personalness of what you're saying. As I mentioned, I have interviewed a lot of female directors, but I think this is probably one of the first times where the whole process for what it means to you is shared. It's fascinating to me for someone who doesn't have that ability. And the fact also that there, there's so much of you. I know that may sound really silly in what you do, but there really yeah. is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there really is, which is why it costs a lot as a filmmaker, um, because that movie is who I am, you know. Um, and that means that you have to have so much resilience uh, when you're putting yourself into your work like that because it is your heart and soul and the themes are so important to me and the people are so important to me which is probably partly why I wanted to work with Gugu and with Gemma because they're actors that I know and I love dearly dearly as friends as well and so you're trusting people with telling a story which is absolutely a part of who you are you know and you have to be able to be intimate enough with those actors to trust them with that interaction. Um, and it's no surprise, actually, I think that actors and directors often form a collaboration and work again and again together because this Gemma and I did Nell Gwynn together and then a, a short film called Leading Lady Parts and then Summerland. And now we're already writing a television series which we're making together and we've become extremely close friends and it's because you share such a lot and you know I, I I do wear my heart on my sleeve as a writer and I don't know any other way of doing it I think if you can write outside yourself that probably protects you a great deal but it's also why for example when when this comes out reading reviews that sort of thing you know feeling how other people feel about the work that you've made you really have to either avoid that completely or have a sent some sort of resilience to think if people don't like this, if people don't engage with it, how do you not take that personally when it is so such personal work? It's it's hard. And I tend right. to bury myself a little bit from reviews for exactly that reason, just in case. <laughs> but it is bigger than you, like I said. Yeah. This is what you have to do. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> it's almost saying, so take it or leave it ladies and gentlemen yeah yeah and that's my my aim is always to say I've made this I've done my absolute best I've made a piece of work I'm really proud of and I'm putting it out there in the world and if you like it fine and if you don't like it fine but this isn't actually for you <laughs> this is out there and therefore it exists beyond me and I think that's why um it's so, so important not to compromise in your work because if you, if I put Summerland out there and I felt like it, it wasn't my story, it would be very difficult to say, take it or leave it. But I think you have to know that you've done your best and you have to know that it was the film that you really wanted to make and not a sort of hybrid where you sort of kowtow to studio heads and 
changed bits to make other people happy, for example. And that is difficult. And the bigger the movies that you do, the more of a factor that is. And, and all the other movies that I'm doing at the moment are all, I'm not directing any of them, but they are much bigger budget, much bigger scale, much bigger sort of audience quadrants. And that does mean that you need to still try and hang on to what's personal in something in order to have your own voice. Well, you can't just drop that and say all the other movies I'm working on. Whoever speaks like that, (laughs) what are you doing? Well, quite a lot. Um, But I've always had more than one project on the go because I think, particularly with something like Summerland, it's so personal and so all-consuming that I'm not sure I'm someone who can do back-to-back Summerlands because it takes all of your energy and your vitality and your soul and your experience and actually what I really love is mixing that up and um I I only do work that I really care about and that I'm passionate about and that I believe in but to mix up original pieces like that with something where there's other creatives involved so for example I'm doing several adaptations I've got I've written an adaptation of Jane Austen's Persuasion for Fox Searchlight and I loved doing that. But it, even though it's immensely personal and I feel very much like the author of it because it's in some ways very far from the book because it has to be because it's a film, it's not my original. And therefore, there's a sort of separation. You know, I can, I can take it a tiny bit less personally than something like Summerland. Who works on so many things at once? I think probably a lot of writers and directors, I mean, possibly not writer-directors, but a good deal of writers that I know have four or five different commissions at the same time, because the way that they interact with each other, with something like I've I've been writing the movie script for Nell Gwynn, and by the time I've handed that in, I've then got a couple of weeks where I wait for notes to come back from the execs, and while I'm waiting for those notes, I'll do my next pass on persuasion or I'll work on my new original feature or like so I'm doing Nell Gwynn and um, persuasion and then a couple of others but that are good contrast as well or I'm writing a play at the moment and and the opportunity to get your I, I find like you I find that you have to take a break from a project in order to be able to see the wood for the trees even if it's for a week and so rather than just having a week off which actually would be lovely and maybe I ought to do more I will spend that week doing one of my other projects so that they're always on rotation. I was going to ask you (laughs) do you ever do nothing? (laughs) That is a really good question and I am increasingly trying to have time where I do less but I think what happened was because my career took off as a writer when I was already busy directing and then my career took off in film when I already was knee deep in making theatre, I'm a bit of a yes person and I get terrible FOMO, fear of missing out. And so when somebody (laughs) offers you an amazing opportunity, I did, I'm getting better at it, but I did find it really hard to say no. And when I first started writing in film, I started getting offers and and each offer that came in seemed to be a bit more irresistible than the last. And I'd think, oh no, but I've committed to that one and I've started that. But this, I can't turn <laughs> this down. Maybe I can just squeeze that in as well. And, you know, so before I knew it, I had, I mean, I've at the moment I've got 
seven seven different projects which are live at the moment and oh I don't count Summerland in that because I feel like I've I've done my work on that even though obviously press etc but that is I think that's quite normal I think you it's do. normal uh, well I don't but now maybe maybe I'm an anomaly <laughs> is that back and forth between theatre and film it's um probably 80% film and TV Mm-hmm. But I like to keep my hand in in the theatre just because it's my it's like a comfortable little attic room where I like to go and potter every so often. <laughs> well, and that's in a sense what propelled you dancing at corporate shows, notwithstanding. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I mean that was true. the biggie. Yeah, I would be remiss if we didn't get into the politics of what you do. Mm-hmm. In terms of Times Up UK and the fifty fifty campaign, and that you've using theater as a developmental tool in countries torn apart by war. I don't know how you juggle all those balls in the air. And if the risk of deifying you, that's exactly what I'm doing. (laughs) Well, that's very kind. But, you know, I think there's, it's not necessarily necessary to separate my political work from my everyday work because my politics are so inherent in what I do. And actually something like Time's Up, which I feel really passionately about, both in terms of the representation and, and fairness and equality in terms of gender, but also now more widely issues of representation of race and of sexuality, politics and class. I feel like it's so in my bones to want to make work which reflects the community that it comes from. And I don't want to go to the cinema in my local picture house Um which is Brixton, which is a really multicultural part of London and where uh, definitely, as a white person, I'm in the minority in terms of the streets that I live in. Street, street. there's only one street, but in my local community, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we are a really mixed bag of local residents in terms of ethnicity. I don't want to go to the cinema and see a whitewashed film and watch you know, a young girl of colour sitting next to me watching that film and having no connection to the story that's being told and not seeing anyone who looks like her on the screen. And so my politics isn't an extra burden in terms of I can address it through my work. It was really important to me that Summerland had diversity across the casting. It was really important to me that the crew was 50% women, 50% men. And that was a really, really hard push. But it's possible. You just have to know that Stand your ground. You have to stand your ground. And I was told at the beginning of that that it was going to slow things down and make things more difficult. And you have to have the resilience to say, okay, so we better get going then if it's going to be hard. (laughs) Stop talking about it. And I knew I was lucky because I'd made a short film four times up called Leading Lady Parts with Gemma and a bunch of other brilliant actresses and actually because that was about gender and featured lots of very well-known actors like Amelia Clark and Felicity Jones and Florence Pugh and Catherine Tate, various other people, um, and Wumi Musaku and Tom Hiddleston mm-hmm. to get a bit of a gender split. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, when we made that, we were absolutely determined to have a 100% female crew and we nearly, nearly did it with the exception of I think two people out of about a hundred. Um, and that made me think, do you know what? It might be hard to find them, but 
there are women who can do every different job on a film set and who are qualified to do that. So no more excuses. Really, really. I've said this practically every interview only because it's true. I don't even know why I have to comment on it, but it so strikes me that the women who I have met have such a strong sense of self. Right. Yeah. But I wonder how much that's true underneath as well, because I think that a lot of creative people have a strong outward sense of self. And then you, well, I can only speak for myself, but I feel like the balance is that you have to be confident, you have to be self-assured, you have to be able to walk into a room and to say, you need to trust that I've never made a movie before, but your five million pounds that I'm asking you for is not going to be lost and wasted when I screw it up. I'm going to make a great movie and you won't regret working with me. That takes a lot of faith and self-propulsion and support from other people to make you feel like you're worthy. But the balance of that, and like I say, I'm only talking about myself, is that often to be creative, to be imaginative, to, and to, to, to use feelings in the work that you make, you're probably somebody who feels things very keenly. And I feel like I've got, you know, I've been referred to as an emotional sponge before. <laughs> in terms of feeling, I, I feel things very, very deeply. And um, whether that's to do with a reaction to work or whether that's in my writing or whether that's to do with if something doesn't work or if someone does put you down or if, if you do meet conflict and confrontation in the work that you do, that can be really difficult. And um, you've got to be brave and get over it and carry on. But I think that there's a certain amount of a front which you need. So I just wonder whether when you're talking to all of these women who are incredibly self-assured, whether there's quite a lot of us who uh, that's a very useful trait to have, but it sometimes has its equal part in quite a lot of vulnerability underneath that. Well, for sure, because we're all human. Mm -hmm. But I think that as you empower us with what you've done and what you've said, I just think that that's kind of the perfect way to end. I mean, what we've learned from you and what you've done is just can't be diminished, Jessica. You're a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> well, I've got a lot of energy and a lot of stories still to tell. So I hope that. Yeah, um, you got a lot of talent. There are, some, there are some people with deep pockets who might be able to help to propel that in terms of future work because the one thing I know for sure is that not only do I want to carry on telling stories and, and writing and directing original work but I want to do that in a way that can embrace as much sort of diversity and as, as much variety of the experience of human life as possible because for too long all the films that we've had, particularly in mainstream cinema, feel like they've told the same stories about the same people. And, and if there's one thing I have to contribute, I hope that it's to open that out a little bit more. And if there's a way of doing that where it's not just about my stories, but encouraging other voices too. And that's where Time's Up comes in. And that's where that work in the conflict zones comes in and 50-50. 
as much as I don't want to see movies that are just the experience of middle-aged privileged white men I also don't want to only see movies about people like me I want to be able to enjoy the span of everything and I think that that is an advantage of getting a little bit further in the business is that you start to be able to open up those opportunities for other people too. Well sure there movies are just such a powerful tool Mm -hmm. to expose educate as well as entertain enlighten and encourage. Jessica Swell, what can I say? It was so great to meet and get to know you. And I extend this offer to you. Please keep us abreast of what's going on in your world. I'd love to have you back. I have done part twos and part threes, and it would be a no-brainer to have you back. Well, it's been such a pleasure. And if I've said anything that can spark a little bit of creativity or if there's one person out there who might think oh maybe I could do that too or maybe that silly one page idea I had which is buried somewhere in a drawer maybe there could be something in that then you know we all have stories in us so I hope that it encourages some other people to tell theirs too. Well thank you for sharing yours I really appreciate it and it was totally my pleasure to meet and get to know you. It was an absolute privilege thank you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.